the citizens of Tucson in 1873 were fed up. In their opinion, law enforcement officers were simply not doing their jobs well enough and allowing criminals and degenerates to escape from justice through all sorts of legal technicalities. That could not stand. So on August 8th, the population finally decided that someone had to do something for the good of the community. In that vein, a large mob formed, stormed the county jail, and brought out four men who were all being held for murder. These were taken and hung in plain view from a scaffold erected at the jail's door, and they were even provided with a member of the clergy to confide in first. Incredibly, in the aftermath, a coroner's jury actually commended this mob action, saying, quote, such extreme measures seem to be the inevitable result of allowing criminals to escape the penalties of their crimes, end quote. Months later, a grand jury would again commend this action as being justice that was dispensed at the hands of, quote, a large majority of our substantial, peaceable, and law-abiding citizens, end quote. Obviously, today we look down on these types of lynchings, even if we are angered about what the law and the courts do and do not do. But the funny thing about justice in the Old West, and especially in Arizona, is that there was sometimes a very, very fuzzy line between law and lawlessness. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 130, Law and Order, Part 2, Bandits, Desperados, and Upstanding Citizens. Welcome back, everyone. Last time, we started the first half of our small miniseries here about the law in the Old West by exploring the lives of several prominent peace officers. However, as much as we do love a good lawman, what many of us are here for is the outlaws. Jesse James, Billy the Kid, Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid, etc., etc., etc. And I'll just nip this in the bud right now, but sorry, none of those guys are going to be appearing this episode. But we are going to be talking about cutthroats, bandits, and desperados today, as well as the inglorious end that many of them came to. Before we dive into that, however, I want to relay something that early state historian James H. McClintock says when he tackled this very subject. And that is that many of the quote-unquote criminals that lawmen dealt with on a day-to-day -day basis were not necessarily bad men, but merely desperate or foolish. Or maybe both. They liked guns and to shoot up the town in the same way that children like to play with firecrackers. Often, when there was an episode of cowboys firing wildly into the air, it was just one way of letting off some steam. Put another way, for all of those who saw the 2010 remake of True Grit, in most cases they were committing malum prohibitum, not malum in se. And this was helped along by the fact that due to the constant threat of marauding Amerindians, everyone carried a firearm with them. If a man was foolish or desperate enough, that rifle he kept for self-defense suddenly started looking like it had a lot more uses. Consequently, as the 19th century came to a close, the territory would eventually pass a law to prohibit the carrying of guns in most towns to cut down on just those sort of situations. 
However, not everyone was just foolish or childish and wanted to have a good time. And to kick off our examination of such figures, where's a better place to start than down in Bisbee? On December 8, 1883, a group of five robbers descended on the Goldwater and Castaneda store in town, where they held those inside against the wall at gunpoint while they cleaned out the store and its safe of any money or valuables. Now, two of them carried out this side of the operation, while the other three remained outside, shooting at anybody who appeared. And these wound up killing five people, including a pregnant woman, before fleeing. As you can imagine, the residents of Bisbee did not take too kindly to this, and a posse was promptly formed to round up the outlaws. Among this party was a man named John Heath, who had actually masterminded the entire robbery. Once he tried to lead the posse off the trail one too many times, everyone became a mite bit suspicious. The other five would eventually be all rounded up and tried in February 1884. Because most of them had been recognized during the holdup, and there was a ton of evidence, they would all be found guilty and hung. You can actually find their graves, marked with a singular headstone in Tombstone's famous Boot Hill Cemetery. Their grave marker makes sure to say that they were legally hanged, which was not the fate of Mr. Heath. At his request, Heath was tried separately, and eventually found guilty of second-degree murder. The judge gave him a life sentence at the Yuma Territorial Prison, but the citizens, well, they were still incensed over what they were now calling the Bisbee Massacre, and they decided that just wasn't good enough. On February 22, 1884, they stormed the Tombstone Jail where he was being kept, overpowered the sheriff and his deputies, took Heath, and hung him from a telegraph pole. As we'll see, this will become something of a running theme in today's episode. Another infamous criminal also became a minor celebrity just because they were not a highway man, but a highway woman. Dressed in men's clothes, with her hair cut short, McClintock describes Pearl Hart as a woman, quote, with insatiable cravings for morphine, cigarettes, and notoriety, end quote. In 1899, she and a male companion stopped a stagecoach heading between Globe and Florence and robbed it at gunpoint. They were later apprehended when the sheriff managed to sneak up on them at night while they were sleeping in the desert. He later said that her companion gave himself up immediately, but Hart put up quite the struggle. In fact, she would later escape from jail by cutting her way out of a partition that had been set up, and it wouldn't be until she reached Deming, New Mexico that she was captured again. The case drew national attention, as the novelty of a female bandit became a cause célèbre. Leaning into this, during her court appearance, Hart abandoned her tomboy look in favor of more traditional and feminine attire, making sure everyone knew how cultured and intelligent she was. This tactic worked as the jury convicted her companion, but found her not guilty. Enraged by this, the judge actually dismissed the jury and then had Hart brought up on another charge related to the robbery. This time, the selected jury came back with the desired verdict, and Hart was sentenced to a five-year stint at the Yuma Territorial Prison. As a woman was a very rare sight in prison, she again became something of a celebrity, and inmates and guards alike tripped over themselves to do favors for her. She actually used some of these admirers in attempts to escape, but all these plans were eventually foiled. 
Hart was paroled by the governor in January 1903, but as everyone knew she was a very conniving woman, it was on the condition that she leave Arizona immediately. In fact, a paid-for railroad ticket to Kansas City was put into her hand as she was let out of prison. Hart, whose real last name was Taylor, would go on to briefly appear in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show before she dropped out of the public eye altogether. The coda to this is years later, in 1940, a census taker would swear that he found Hart, married and living under an assumed name, and once again back in Arizona. Of course, no Wild West outlaw story would be complete without a good old-fashioned train robbery. And one of my personal favorites is the tale of Grant Wheeler and Joe George, who decided to rob the Southern and Pacific Railroad. They managed to stop the train, decouple the passenger cars, and have the conductor move the mail and baggage cars several miles up the track. Then, using dynamite purchased in Wilcox, ostensibly for mining, the pair blew open the smaller of two safes aboard, which netted them around $1,500 in cash. However, the second safe, a larger one from Wells Fargo, was a tougher nut to crack. After a second attempt with dynamite failed, the two would-be thieves decided to go all in. They unloaded all the explosives they had brought and then lit the fuse. This wound up blowing up not only the safe, but pretty much the entire car. And the safe cracked all right, but the eight thousand silver pesos inside went flying everywhere, embedding themselves in telegraph poles and scattering across the desert. It said that for years afterward, people would find twisted silver pesos along the tracks. And in case you're wondering what happened to our outlaws, well, they got away, only to try and strike again at another train. This time, however, they uncoupled the wrong cars and so got away with nothing. And one of them was eventually tracked down in Colorado by law enforcement, and seeing the hopelessness of his situation, decided to take his own life rather than surrender. Now, another train robbery occurred near the community of Cochise, located off US-191 south of I-10, on September 11, 1899. Around 11.30 p.m., two men hijacked a Southern and Pacific Railroad train, taking it to a pre-arranged point where more accomplices were waiting to blow the safe. And all in all, the bandits made off with $30,000 in gold. Cochise's town marshal, Bert Alvord, was playing cards in the back room of a local saloon at the time, and was quickly informed of the crime. He and a friend went in search of the banditos, but were unable to find their men. Cursing their luck, they returned empty-handed. But here's where things take a twist. Because another lawman by the name of Bert Grover became suspicious of how ineffective Alvord turned out to be. Really suspicious. It seems that Cochise's marshal was a classic good old boy from Tombstone, and he had friends everywhere, including among certain outlaws. Doggedly following his gut, Grover finally got the keeper of the saloon where Alvord had supposedly been playing poker to admit that he had been paid to take drinks into the back room of the bar every so often and then come back with empty glasses. So Alvord and his gang had snuck out of a window, robbed the train, and had been back to their poker game before anyone knew what had happened. Unfortunately, this key witness decided to move out of Arizona, for his health, don't you know, and Grover couldn't bring up any charges. But Alvord and his gang would be caught during a later botched train heist. 
After several stints in jail, and finally the prison in Yuma, the former town marshal fled the U.S. for Panama, Brazil, and Barbados, where he died in 1909. The cash from this train robbery was never recovered. And speaking of ill-gotten, never-recovered gains, we have to talk about Colossal Cave. Now, this story falls more under the legend column than history, but it's a great story that I've heard several times and I just can't resist recounting it. Now, according to this story, in 1887, four men robbed the train for $60,000 and then tried to escape from a posse sent after them by hiding out in Colossal Cave near modern-day Vale. This posse saw them go in and so patiently waited at the entrance for them to come out. They even lit fires to try and smoke the desperados out of their hidey hole. However, after literal weeks of being cooped up in the cave, the robbers supposedly found a second exit. So after stashing their loot, they made off scot-free. Supposedly, three of these men would soon be dead from a gunfight near Wilcox, and the remaining robber was sent to Yuma on a 28-year sentence. When he was finally turned loose in 1912, Wells Fargo detectives trailed him seeing as their loot had never been recovered. And this man went back into Colossal Cave, but once again utilized the second exit to give the detectives the slip. Supposedly, all they ever found was some empty money sacks. Like I said, it's an entertaining story, but of dubious historicity. But one of the enduring ironies of the Old West is that lawlessness wasn't limited to outlaws. Even those that considered themselves fine, upstanding citizens, even vessels of the law, could and regularly did resort to extra-legal means to achieve their ends. We've already seen how John Heath was lynched over the Bisbee Massacre, as well as a few other attempted lynchings connected to the Pleasant Valley War, and in other instances throughout the podcast. And these were by no means exceptions. In 1882, three men attacked a mule train near Globe that was carrying mail and $10,000 worth of gold, and killed two men in the process of robbing it. These were very speedily taken into custody, and on the same night consented to take a posse to where the loot had been stashed, with hopes of escaping the angry citizenry of Globe. However, at the same time they were doing that, a vote was taken by the remaining residents. One man was spared because he had only been a lookout, but as for the other two... Well, the express agent on hand read a telegraph from his superintendent, which read, quote, Damn the money, hang the murderers, end quote. When the outlaws were brought back into town, they were instructed to write their final will and testament. After 2 a.m., these were marched to a large sycamore tree where two long ropes had been thrown over a tall branch. One of the outlaws turned down any sort of aid from a local Methodist preacher, who had come not to stop the executions, but to give comfort to the dying. And he is supposedly have told the preacher, quote, I don't believe that anything you can say would aid me where I'm going, end quote. The other bandit insisted that if he was going to die, it wasn't going to be with his boots on so he sat down in the mud and took them off first. After that, the civic-minded residents of Globe pulled on those two ropes and lynched the two men, less than 24 hours from the crime being committed. In a similar vein, we saw how the angry residents of Tucson lynched the four convicted murderers in 1873, 
And in August 1877, the citizenry of Safford lynched another man arrested for murder, just to avoid the courts making the quote-unquote wrong decision. We find more records of more lynchings by angry but well-organized mobs in Mojave County in 1877, St. John's in 1881, and Holbrook in 1885. In short, if you got caught committing a violent crime, you only saw the inside of a courtroom if you were lucky. But even then, the law wasn't always that legal. According to McClintock, there was something known as the law west of the Pagos, which deviated quite a bit from normal jurisprudence, either out of ignorance of the actual law or just a disdain for precedence. Examples of this include one justice who declared an act of Congress unconstitutional, another where a district attorney had to stop a lowly camp constable from carrying out himself the hanging sentence ordered by a judge, and finally a justice of the peace in Graham County who wanted to get married to a girl but couldn't find an officiant. So he officiated his own wedding, answering the questions that he himself was asking and then issuing his own marriage certificate. One fun little anecdote I found was a judge in Tucson who decided to bring some decorum and proper conduct to the courtroom. So he informed everyone that smoking would be prohibited and everyone would need to wear a coat while in his courtroom. Soon after this edict was issued, a grand jury was convened and the judge was enraged to see a minor who appeared in overalls and a dark shirt. When asked where in tarnation the man's coat was, the minor meekly replied that it was at home. So the judge barked, quote, Then go and get it. Not a word, sir, or I'll commit you for contempt. End quote. The man instantly left the courthouse and didn't return for two whole weeks. When the judge caught sight of him and demanded to know where he had been, the miner again replied meekly that his home was in the mountains near the Mexican border nearly 100 miles away and that he had gone to get his coat, just like the judge had ordered him to. The pinnacle of lawlessness by a lawman, though, might be Justice of the Peace James Burnett, who became the de facto dictator of the rough-and-tumble town of Charleston in Cochise County in the 1880s. The story goes that Burnett made one report to the Cochise County Board of Supervisors asking for some funding. When this was shot down, he declared that his court would just take care of itself then. From that point on, he would administer justice however he pleased, wherever he pleased, and he would just set fines and then he would pocket them. He once charged a man $1,000 for committing murder, and then he pulled a drunken desperado off his horse and fined him on the spot 20 head of cattle. As the only government official around, his rule would have gone on indefinitely if the town hadn't gone belly up after the mines in nearby Tombstone were abandoned. Burnett would go on to become Justice of the Peace in another town before being killed in Tombstone in 1897 by a man who blamed Burnett for blowing up a dam which had killed his daughter. McClintock sums up Burnett's career with a pithy remark of, quote, It is singular that his killing was for one crime that in all probability he did not commit, end quote. But the absolute best example I can find of lawlessness in the hands of normally upright and outstanding citizens is the WAM payroll robbery. The robbery itself occurred on May 11, 1889, as Major Joseph Washington WAM and a small company were on the road between Fort Grant and Fort Thomas. 
Wom had been given orders to distribute the payroll to Forts Bowie, Grant, Thomas, and Apache, along with Camp San Carlos. With him and his clerk was a contingent of 11 black soldiers from the 10th Cavalry and 24th Infantry. After paying the soldiers at Fort Grant early on the morning of May 11th, the company headed out on the road to Fort Thomas, carrying a little over 28,000 in gold and silver coins in a lockbox. The first part of this trip proceeded normally, and the company eventually rounded the northern edge of the Penaleno Mountains, which took them from the Sulphur Springs Valley into the Gila River Valley, where Pima, Thatcher, and Safford sit. By 1 p.m., everything was on schedule, and they still expected to make Fort Thomas that afternoon. However, everything came to a stop as soon as they found a large rock in the middle of the road the mules and the wagons simply could not go around. Not suspecting any trouble, the soldiers put down their guns and moved quickly to try and remove the rock. But, as you might have seen coming, this is when trouble found them. Suddenly, a whole company of men rose up from improvised breastworks in the rocky hills above them and opened fire. The soldiers scrambled to find what cover they could, and they tried to fire back, but the thieves were well prepared and had chosen the most opportune moment to strike. After a full 30 minutes of bullets flying, the soldiers saw that they were in a precarious position and reluctantly began to slowly retreat back down the hill. Eight of the 11 soldiers with WAM were injured, but luckily no one had been fatally wounded. At this point, the robbers moved in, split open the lockbox with an axe, grabbed the money, and disappeared in two groups over the hill. When the soldiers were able to safely make it back to their wagons and then to the enemy fortifications, they found more than 200 expended rifle cartridges. Wom and his men were finally able to gather their remaining mules and haul the wagons to Fort Thomas that evening. The investigation into this shooting started almost immediately, and soon it became apparent that this hadn't been orchestrated by some rogue gang of outlaws. In fact, suspicion fell squarely on many of the men from the quiet Mormon settlement of Pima and the surrounding farms. Many of these had been spotted and identified by soldiers during the attack, as no one seems to have bothered to wear a mask at all. The suspected ringleader was a man named Gilbert Webb. If you were a neighbor and a member of the church, Webb was a hard-working, prosperous, generous, kindly, and civic-minded man who was then serving as mayor of Pima. If he weren't a member of the church and his neighbor, then Webb was a polygamist, hard-driving, ambitious, manipulative man who had fled Utah to avoid charges of grand larceny. There was some talk that he had overextended himself in his business and was thus coming up short on funds, which could lead to a motive. And as crazy as the plan of stealing an army payroll sounds, it made more sense back then. First, the U.S. government, even the Arizona government, was some distant thing that seldom was interested in helping the citizen farmer in the far-flung places. Settlers feared and mistrusted government as much as they feared and mistrusted other monolithic forces, such as railroads, mining companies, and livestock outfits. One old citizen of Pima said that, quote, Remember, back in those days, taking from the federal government wasn't necessarily considered stealing. End quote. Then we should add in here the Mormon contempt toward the U.S. government, which had done nothing when they had been driven out of Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois, and then hounded and persecuted them over the issue of polygamy. And secondly, there was the racial angle. 
Remember, the payroll was guarded by black soldiers. Surely they wouldn't be brave and defend the payroll if push came to shove, at least not as well as a white man, right? With these factors at play, and a possibly desperate mastermind at the helm, stealing the payroll might have looked like the smartest move. Despite the fact that there were definitely more than a dozen robbers who had purposely built hidden barricades, blocked the road, and then fired on the soldiers, only seven men were eventually arrested. And the arrest of these men split popular opinion in the local communities, with some taking it as a frame-up job to once again attack Mormons, while others said that they knew that these men were guilty. It's also reported that Webb's family never forgave a man named Lorenzo Watson because Watson refused to say that he had seen Webb in town on the day of the robbery. The church, meanwhile, tried its best to stay neutral in the whole affair, declaring that only one of the men taken was still in good standing, and if he was found guilty, they would cut him off immediately. So, next came the courtroom drama. The original judge was accused of being a friend and ally of Webb's, and actually dismissed the original jury after they complained to the U.S. Attorney General about him. While that may have felt good, that judge ended up getting replaced too. Eventually, the trial began on November 11, 1889, and would run 33 days. In total, 165 witnesses testified, with more than half of them being called as witnesses for the defense, and one source says that many of them were friends and relatives of Webb. The defense team were some of the best lawyers money could buy, and they did a great job painting the prosecution as the real villains and persecutors, playing into the typical frontier hatred for the man. Once again, we do have to emphasize that the soldiers who had been there were black. Some had been born into slavery, but were now in a position to send white men to prison, which also factored in to the jury's decision. And that decision? Not guilty. A verdict that shocked the entire courtroom and the territory as a whole. State historian Marshall Trimble says that some considered the lack of a conviction in the WAM payroll robbery to be one of the worst miscarriages of justice in the history of Arizona. Now, most of the men involved went back to their normal lives. But Wilfred T. Webb, Gilbert's son and one of the accused, would go on to have a distinguished political career. He served as the Speaker of Arizona's Territorial House of Representatives, as a member of its Constitutional Convention, and as an elector who cast Arizona's first presidential ballot. He also supposedly spoke often about the Walm robbery in his speeches. If someone asked him if he was really part of the robbery, his stock retort was, quote, 12 good men said I wasn't, end quote. He was also fond of telling people, quote, I neither confirm nor deny any involvement. To confirm would be to admit my guilt, but to deny would surely ruin a good story. End quote. And that seems as good a place as any to leave things here for this week. But join me next week as we move off the topic of law and order and circle around to politics and catch up with the things happening in Phoenix as Arizona saunters into the 1890s and takes its first tentative steps toward statehood. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.